Katya, nice, <laughs> nice to meet you again. How are you? I'm, I'm fine. It, it, it looks like it's a, a nice morning there. Is that is that the the sky I see through your window? That, lo- yes, that looks very. Yes, it is. Yes, very it nice is. And sunny today. Yeah, we are we are all alive uh, after a muscle attack. So yes, it is a beautiful morning, and we really enjoy it. <laughs> Last night was a, a, another round of missiles and, and I, uh, drones. I would say another try. Yeah, not successful. I hope. Good. Thank God. Thank God. Well, I'm um, I've, I'm a big fan of yours. I've been learning all that you do and studying and looking at everything in your career, and I'm just really fascinated by what you're doing. And the purpose of this podcast is very similar to what you're doing, actually, spreading the good news about Ukrainian culture abroad. And that's what I am very much intend to do here in America in particular. And I want to um, use this podcast and shows with artists like yourself and, and important cultural figures like yourself to to really let Americans know why it's important to support Ukraine and why Ukrainians are fighting for their culture, among other things. I mean, I, I, th- I think that is really a, a mission that I've, I feel very strongly about. And I do think... There's a lot of news about Ukraine, a lot in the news, and not enough of the good stuff about Ukraine in the news, you know? And that, and that's really what the purpose of this podcast is. Katya, I'd like to just start off by uh, talking a little bit about where you're from and your background. So you were born in Luhansk. What is your hometown like? I left Luhansk in uh, 2000 or even 2001, I guess, as uh, soon as I was 18 years old. Uh, at that time, I felt that there is no much perspective for me. I don't know if it was so, because the memory plays games with us. So uh, at that moment, uh, I felt I have to leave. And I went to Donetsk, then I went to Kiev, then I went to London. So it was a long journey before I actually ended up in Kiev and felt it uh, as my home. Um, and in 2014, when the war started and when my homeland was occupied uh, my parents left there and they left to Kiev and since then they were staying here uh, until the full-scale invasion. I can't tell you much about Lugansk. I was going uh, there probably each year to see my parents for New Year's or my parents' birthday and um, it was um, a bit sad because not much things were going on, but it was much better than in nineties, where there was a lot of like criminal and uh, not much governmental control. Almost everybody was, at that time were really like Russian speaking. There was a lot of propaganda at that time. Uh, growing up there, I didn't understand that. I was just a part of that culture and the flow, yeah, that was around me. So uh, and then I was coming back and like. 2005, 7, 10th, 13th uh, was the last time I came. Uh, and it was actually changing because at that time, most of the universities and probably schools were already Ukrainian speaking and the city was changing in a nice way, you know. Um, well, first of all, there were always some writers and great artists who came from there. And from other side, there were some enterprises and uh, theater and uh, restaurants. So it was changing actually, but um, I still uh, didn't see myself there. So so I left. Yeah. Uh, and the last thing I remember um, is when um, the war started. Um, I was checking what is going on with my district, uh, the street I, I was living because my parents left after MH16 felt it was dangerous at that time. And I remember I was looking through Google Maps to what's there, like how is my school like, looks. And I saw that it's destroyed after uh, a bombing. And I was asking my mom just recently, uh, did they like, did they do something? Uh, Did they rebuild it, refurbished? And she said, no, like there was some destroyments that uh, it can't be functional. So it's like a monument of the beginning of the war that is still there in the same stage. So you can go to the Google map, see the school number 51 in Lugansk and see how it looks. At it. It's like a, a destroyed monument of war. 
Oh, that's so sad. I have read um, that hundreds of schools have been purposely attacked um, with bombs and, and rockets throughout Ukraine. And I suppose that that means your school was one of those hundreds and hundreds of schools that have been purposely uh, attacked by the Russians, it sounds like. Um, yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, of course, uh, there is all, always one answer to that, that there was a military base or something, but as we know now, it's not the case. When we talk about theaters and hospitals and schools and kin- kindergartens, if you check it, you find out that there was no military bases in that. So that was right. just made on purpose to destroy education, to destroy culture. So, Right, right. Do you, do you still have some connection with people who live there? No, it's difficult. Uh, I was uh, a godmother for a daughter of a friend of mine and um, we were very close. And actually, it is pretty... Uh, obvious story because we started to talk in 2014 and she was, I was on like Ukrainian side, she was on the Russian side. So we had a fight and then I got a lot of hate uh, because I went in 2015 to the borderline to talk to people. We were doing the project. We wanted to talk more about families who stay there, about kids uh, and tell their stories. Uh, and I went there and I was with the military who were like showing me those li- little villages with a few people who stayed there. And we went to places like Marienka, probably you've heard about it, which is like oh, almost yeah. totally destroyed. And we went to the yes. basements. I talked to, to kids who stayed there at that time. I have no idea what is going on there right now. Uh, and then she saw those pictures um, in my social media and she said that, um, like, uh, I killed Ukrainian kids or something like that. And I was like, what? <laughs> so that was the end of our 20 years of relationship. And I think that is pretty much what happened to many people, like, who are, uh, who has different, let's call it political views. Yeah. So I have some relatives there, but uh, I I don't talk to them because I don't provoke those conversations and it is not productive really. So I, my mother is like, uh, she's the one who keeps all the family connections so she can tell me that, that everybody is okay and, you know, just tell me some news, but I don't really speak to anyone anymore from there. So your mother and father were from Lugansk? Originally, uh, I'm half Russian. My father is partly from Siberia, partly from Rostov area. And mm-hmm. my mother is mm-hmm. Ukrainian. And, uh, you know, there was like this global movement uh, of USSR idea that people has to like to be everywhere around the USSR and they all need to speak Russian. So they would send Russian speaking people to Ukrainian areas, for example, not only to Ukrainian, but also to like Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan and so on. But, mm-hmm. So... Um, Family, uh, like different families would move. And um, as I you, my father's family moved to Lugansk from uh, Rostov because, I mean, there was a third wave of this um, amazing era, you know, uh, where we had all the factories and uh, uh, growing after the Second World War. Um, so um, they would have some job there. Uh, and my mother is originally from Lugansk. Her family has Ukrainian origins. So yes, they lived there until 2014. Then they lived until 2022 in Kiev. But she would come back every few months to Lugansk to check apartments, to check her brother. And she has two brothers there. So she's taking care of one of them. She knows like what is going on there. She would tell me like, uh, what are the prices for the food? Uh, that and, and then we have this amazing phenomenon of a pension tourism. I don't know if you've heard it. Oh, yes. Can you explain that? That's very yes. interesting. That, I mean, that is interesting and sad at the same time. Uh, pension tourism would be uh, a possibility for people who live uh, who had to leave their homes in the occupied territories and now registered um, in Ukraine officially like in Kiev or other places they would uh, get some help from the government but then they would come back to that occupied territory it probably could be dangerous or for whatever other reason they could not stay there but they would also get some help from the local local government there in I guess, rubles. Uh, and then they will 
will come back to, let's say, Kiev and get the pension there also. So they would get this help from two of those sources, which I can understand completely because the pension is around uh, $100. So let's call, let's say that in, in, in total, they would get... So per month, per month. Per month, $100. yes. So, so let's, let's say in total, they will get $200. And for that, she would need to take, like if we talk about my mother, she would take a train, she will go to... Uh, to the border, then she will walk the border, she will take a bus, and then she like gets to a uh, bus station in Lugansk, and then she gets home. And then, so it would take her like two days to get there. Um, and um, yeah, and the same uh, to get back. So how can we blame them? I, I don't know. Yeah. Is it a dangerous trip? Before 2022, it was really dangerous uh at the very beginning of the war because it was a lot of fights around and but then it was a bit less and uh, I was always angry at her when she was going home but now when I'm coming back to Kiev every few months now I am in Kiev and um, I understand her finally Uh, so now we don't do that firstly because if you want to get a pension that you need to get a Russian passport so there is no way to you know to play this game anymore and my parents now are in spain because um, a year and a half ago it was very dangerous in kiev and we decided that they need to go to somewhere else and that was the place Mm -hmm. we went so um probably now they won't get any pension anymore locally so we don't know when she will be able to come back because we still have an apartment there we also cannot sell it for example because you also need a russian passport for that so probably all of that is lost for us but um yeah the most important they are safe when you um were growing up there were you interested in art i hear you're a sixth generation intellectual so was was art sort of something natural coming to you or or were you encouraged very strongly by your family to pursue it? Well, I would hope I'm a, I'm a six. I think that that line is lost on me. But um, <laughs> yeah, I have um, like my parents are educated and there was always art was always around. And my grandfather, my grand grandfather was really... Uh, like an important person in uh, in the area and he was um, a director of a school at once. So there was always something more than just the material things around. But uh, my mother, she's very much in literature uh, and my father really did a great photography and we had an art books and we have an amazing library. So I wouldn't say that they were a part of some kind of a group or, uh, you know, they were socialized in a, in a way where you really... Uh, I didn't have that around much rather than with my parents. Uh, and I didn't understand that influence at the very beginning. Um, so I had, you know, this protest um, years. <laughs> <that> actually, <laughs> teenage years, of Yeah, course, teenage yes. years that actually ended pretty late. <laughs> But then when I was like, um, I was really thinking what I want to do in life. Uh, I was like 35, 26 by then. Uh, So they understood that I have some background that I didn't really think much about. I was always like very creative, but um, I didn't pay attention to that because I thought everyone is like that. I was singing and dancing and drawing and writing. So um, I thought it's like, like it's okay and I still think that everybody is creative but then suddenly I realized that I have some potential in in that field maybe more maybe or just felt that I don't have potential anywhere else (laughs) I don't know (laughs) so that is how what what made you think you had potential was there (laughs) something that made you think wow this is for me this is the right path I was excited. I was very excited. And while I was doing something creative, like drawing or reading or writing, um, mainly I get that flow when you lose the sense of time and then you suddenly like wake up and see that you spend like three hours of writing or doing something creative. And I never got it with any, any other activity. So, and then I thought that, okay, that may be something that gives me not really an inspiration, but an idea that there is something bigger than me. And it's so exciting that I can 
really think not about myself, but about something else, which is great. So yeah, this is how it happened. And then I was looking for ways to get connected to the different things. And then I was studying photography for a little while, like really shortly. And I was thinking maybe I could be a photographer because my father was so great at that. And that didn't work because I saw some things of Man Ray and Diana Arbus and thought, oh no, I, I will never be that great. <laughs> so be, <laughs> better I won't try that. But then I was so interested in the history of photography and then more in the history of art that um, I really thought, okay, there is like, there is so much to 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 learn and research and maybe not to deliver a piece of art, but still to be, you know, a part of something important. Mm-hmm. So that is how actually the, the art history and the contemporary art in general, how it happened to me. And then, yeah, and I was, um, I decided that I, this is something that I want to do. I think that's um, fascinating. I I have a career in the music business. I ran a record label. I, I'm not musically... You say any, everyone's creative. I will challenge you on that. I have no creativity whatsoever. But I, but I was very good at recognizing creative people and trying to help them and promote them and make music with them. And I think that's what you've done with art is you have identified art that you love and, and artists that you love and you've dedicated your life to making their their art known around the world. Is that correct? Um, I try to, yes. Uh, I still believe that everybody is creative because it's more about a profession and I don't really believe much in talent. I believe more in the hard work and, you know, really looking for your own voice. And there are some people who do that with a passion. So talent is not enough. You studied in London at uh, Christie's Education College. What is that exactly? Uh, Well, Christie's Education is an amazing educational platform for students from all over the world. That sounds as an advertisement, probably it is, because I love it. (laughs) I'm I'm sold. It sounds great. (laughs) It is um, several uh, degrees you can get there. It's a bachelor degree, uh, diploma, certificates, uh, MA, whatever. Like, So you can... uh, I went there after I finished uh, my university, after I had my bachelor degree. So I, I got a diploma there from a Cambridge university that they were working uh, together at that time and accredited that uh, college. And that was the most amazing time in my life, I think, because it was such an intensive year of speaking to experts, creators, living artists, uh, visiting biennales and really going deep into the subject. So we would uh, study the history of art, mainly concentrating on contemporary art or modern art, like 20th century uh, art, let's say so. At the same time, I would learn more about the curatorial job and then of how the auction house work and then, you know, generally about art business. So that was uh, really um, very inspiring and it's important that it was in London and London itself is, uh, for me, is the cultural capital of the world. Actually, just being there teaches you a lot because you can stay at the classes and then afternoon you would have a homework to go into the gallery and talk to the artist and write a description about uh, his or her uh, project and then, you know, to take um, Andy Warhol's um, painting and then describe it and that would go into the catalogue for the sale of like a next season. So it was very exciting and uh, absolutely life-changing. Was it a big honor when you received that um, um, invitation to study in London? Is that something you tried very hard to to achieve? Yes, I tried hard and I actually, I went there and I applied and we talked to the tutors and creators of the course and they accepted me and then I couldn't go because I was uh, awarded by visa. Uh, there at that time we had such a struggle to get out of Ukraine because I was young, I was unmarried, so it was like almost impossible for me to go somewhere because they would they they told me like in my eyes that 
you will never come back. And I'm like, no, mm. really, mm. I, I will just uh, give me a chance. And this and, is the British embassy. You're talking to the British uh, embassy yeah, trying to get a visa. Yeah. Yes. At that time, it's uh, like a student visa. And they say, no, you will not get that. And I still went. I was, uh, I told you about that protest side of me. And I'm like, you don't give me a visa. I will still go and study. And I went uh, to, to London I, and I got that course and I started to study. And then I've got a letter from the embassy that I have immediately leave the country because I cannot study with a touristic visa. <laughs> so yeah, oh, no. uh, there was, yeah, there was several months of negotiations and then I had to reapply again. And um, I actually could study just from the next year. So yeah, I was uh, very ambitious, but probably very stupid at that time. <laughs> yeah. I guess your official job title is curator founder and manager of the Port of Culture Agency. Is that correct? Am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah. Port of Culture is like uh, an institution that has, it is an NGO, but also um, we have an agency that works more with the businesses and NGO working mainly with the grants and uh, non-commercial um, projects. And you're the founder of this agency? Uh, I am the founder, yeah. <laughs> why why did you uh, why did you create it what what inspired you to create this um when i came back to kiev i thought that uh, i should do something in that field i didn't know what i didn't know people so it took me time to you know i uh, yeah i got my diploma the next day i um, took a plane and i came back to kiev and it took me probably another year to get to know some people and then I got a partner at that time who was not a curator, but was a good manager. And uh, we were like a curatorial team. There was no no name of that uh, and no structure, no official structure. So we were just organizing projects here and there, some like sculpture festival, pop-up exhibition of an artist or uh, some lectures or course for collectors and so on. But then in 2015, I found a very nice location, which was on the Dnipro River. It was um, a revitalized uh, building that we didn't uh, know what to do there, but I loved it so much. And at that time I felt I need my own space probably because we were, we would rent every time an exhibition space and it would take us money. So I thought maybe we, we should take something for ourselves and we did and that that was an amazing space experimental space for young artists not only visual but also for musicians and uh some theater and other things so it was a creative hub and it was on the river uh it was uh, like a huge line of a river port so that's why it's called port uh, because oh, we, there's yeah. the reason. Okay. Yeah. So we have so we have this amazing space, and it existed for five years, uh, just until the COVID, when it died, of course, because we couldn't pay the rent. The rent was very high at that time. So it called Port Creative Hub, and uh, we hosted like around seven hundred events. That's incredible. Seven hundred events. How how big was your organization? How many how many people? It was up to 10 people, uh, but it's like five years. So we would host, uh, sometimes we would host um, a band there. Some other day we would uh, organize a lecture. So it wasn't like huge exhibitions or something like that. So, but there was something going on there two, three, four times a week. Sometimes we would organize it. Sometimes people would rent it out. Sometimes we would be co-organizers and so on. So port came from there and then of course we were organizing sometimes and uh, we thought that let's let's probably then create an agency uh, and some businesses started to came to us and ask us to help them to organize things and we thought okay so that would work with a space or without space so that is how agency was created and in 2017 and then after covid uh, the space was not there anymore but the agency was uh, existing and then how we continued you started off as a serving businesses, and now you do more projects for NGOs and governmental organizations. It sounds like, like UNICEF and the British Ukrainian Chamber of Commerce organizations. Sometimes businesses came, sometimes uh, foundations or like international organizations came to do an exhibition. And sometimes it would be in our space or a bigger space if they need so. So it's 
Pretty similar approaches, I would say. There is some difference, of course. Generally, of course, the businesses want some PR and some visibilities and governmental or non-commercial organization would want some more social impact. But uh, for me as a curator, it doesn't make much difference because I would still do the project that has a value, social, cultural, and uh, I would just deliver like all my best qualities to, you know, uh, make the project that will work for audience as well. Is the kind of art you curate for a, a private business different than what you would curate for a, a governmental or a charity project? Um, if we would work with a business, we could do not an art exhibition, but a documentary exhibition about the brand or about a special subject. Because being in, like uh, an expert in organizing of an exhibition, we could do it of any kind, not necessarily an artistic one. But we may invite some artists to talk about the subject wider. Yeah, uh, For example, the UNICEF, uh, and we did an exhibition about kids' migrants. It was 250,000 kids at, in 2015 already who had to leave their homes and UNICEF came to us and already said, yes oh, you mean from the from the 2014 invasion already we did an exhibition at the end of 2015 I think uh, as far as I remember so yes at that time it was a quarter million children who had to leave their homes and they came to us uh, and said that we have a bigger project and one of their activities is we want to have an exhibition and talk about children, uh, migrants and about their future, uh, what can we do, you know, to help them. So it is kind of a documentary exhibition from one side, but from other side, uh, because we have some facts there, uh, we make interviews with the kids, film them, but also we need to talk about it widely, I would say more poetically if we can. Uh, and then we would invite some artists who work with that subject and they would already have uh, some installations or art pieces. They would fulfill that exhibition and help us to talk about that issue from different point of views. And then we can invite those artists to work with the kids, for example, to do some workshops and then we would have some discussions with non-governmental or governmental organizations and we'll create some activities around it. I would say that uh, most of all, we would use our experience in organizing in exhibitions, in artistic exhibitions and have this museum approach to presenting things and, you know, enlighten them. Uh, but then quite often we would combine those approaches of, you know, documentary project, artistic project and create some hybrid model that I believe work much better in the contemporary world when, you know, everybody saw everything already. And we want to talk to each person who come to that exhibition and they would find something for themselves. Kata, you are well known for helping artists, particularly abroad, uh, and you created this organization called Artists Support Ukraine. What inspired that? Uh, actually, that story also started in 2014, and we created it together with my partner, Volodymyr Kadehrop, at that time, and he... He was like an uh, ideologist uh, of our curatorial group. And, and then at that time, it didn't work because uh, the world was not very interested in uh, what is going on in Ukraine. So we had some, some activity there, but then it, it was dead in a couple of months. And then on the 24th of February 2022, he called me. We are not partners anymore for many years, but he called me and said, I think it's the time for artists to support Ukraine. And then we created immediately an Instagram account. And the, in a couple of days, we created a website. I had so much adrenaline at that time. I was leaving Kyiv. I was driving with one hand and writing messages and <laughs> sending audio messages with other hand to my designer, staying in this enormous traffic that took me three days to get to the uh, west of the country. So the Artist Support Ukraine is actually a platform that helps to talk about the world, to the world. So we collect the artworks from 
all over the world from international artists, Ukrainian artists. We show them just people like them, they repost them. So it's just um, from one side, it's just a popular Instagram account. But from the other side, it is a foundation under it because we also created a ready-to-print exhibition where we collected the artworks of Ukrainian artists, uh, made all the layouts and anybody in any place in the world could print that exhibition, put them in their gallery or in the street, in the university, in the beauty salon and know about what is going on in Ukraine through the eyes of the artists. But also there is a QR code that you can donate some money and this could be Mm -hmm. a small money. Sometimes people send us like $2 or $4. But then it was so active during the last year. So we collected, I think about $10,000. It's not much, but then it was important at that time. And we gave all that money to the artists. It was emergency grants. And artists or musicians or um, directors, anybody who is uh, creative, they could uh, send an application. And then uh, we got about 1,000 applications at that time. And um, we would give money to those who were most in need. And that was immediate. So like today we collect uh, some money and then tomorrow we send them. So that was an emergency help. And that worked quite well. And then, of course, at the same time, there was many exhibitions going on around the world, including places like Canada or South Korea. And that was pretty amazing. So some people who never heard about those artists or about Ukrainian culture at all could finally see it, even if in like in these circumstances. So the artists just must have been very appreciative of this. This has been a tremendous opportunity for many Ukrainian artists that might not have had an opportunity to exhibit their art around the world. Is that, is that right? Yes, this is also true because, I mean, of course, there are reasons why people know so little about Ukrainian culture. Of course, it was a colony for so many years. Now we are not a colony, but we don't have funds to promote a culture because for, for culture to be known, it needs to be promoted anyhow. So uh, last year in that sense was really like very important in in terms of acknowledgement of Ukrainian culture. And there was so many things going on in all cultural fields that I think really it moved things and people know a little bit more, even if it's only about the war. Well, it was. Now we talk more about the history. Now you can see like more more deep context. People talk about uh, history of art, about Ukrainian avant-garde, uh, about Ukrainian neoclassics, uh, writers at the beginning of 20th century in the 20s, 1920s. So there are many phenomena uh, that are interested for a Western world, but uh, that wasn't the case uh, even a year ago. Does the Ukrainian government recognize your efforts? Do they help you promote abroad? Are they involved at all in your efforts? They are. They don't have any funds for that, obviously. But of course, many of the projects we did last year were done under the support of the Minister of the Foreign Affairs and the Minister of Culture. So they would mainly give us uh, letters of support. And sometimes it's really it's really helping because it's hard to talk to museums. They really very slow and they don't want to do something from today to tomorrow. Those connections to ministers would really help sometimes. You've said that culture has brought Ukrainians closer together uh, since the war started. It's become necessary to better understand what being Ukrainian is, what makes Ukrainian unique. How has the war done that? Um, I think we had a jump in time. Yeah, so things happen very quick now. There is no time to sit and think, what am I going to do? What do I want? I mean, everything is very clear. It's like your glass, like it's been cleaned immediately and you th- you see things. So you don't have, you understand that you can die today, not even tomorrow. So you don't really spend your time for playing games. Everything is very clear. At the same time, everything is black and white. And it's great because you feel that you want to be only with people you trust, only with people you love and so on. But at the same time, the society became very critical 
people are critical toward each other. So there is a lot of tension. There is a lot of hate. There is a lot of love, but it's there is a lot of hate. Mm -hmm. So it's hard. It could be very hard. So things happen much faster. And when we talk about, for example, identity or cultural identity, which for me is the same thing. I believe people started to ask that question to themselves that they didn't ask before. Before there was a question of intellectuals, like, who are we? What, what are we going to do? Where are we going? What is our history? Uh, which language do we speak? Uh, and so on. And now, like all the country ask that uh, to themselves. So, uh, of course, when there is so much intellectual process around, we see so many changes. For example, since the beginning of the war, I think there was like 60% of people who speak Ukrainian and now it's like almost 90 I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. That's a, a major leap. How did that happen so fast? Well, because the language is political, because people understood that. And of course, there is a lot of information around so you can search and you can, you know, uh, you can think about it. But then when you have an invasion because they came to free a Russian speaking people, then you understand that. I'm a Russian speaking. I don't want anything. I don't need to be free from anything. Go home. And then you start to think, is the language, is a political instrument? Could it be? And then the answer is yes. And then if it's so, then I have my own language. So then I would choose to speak it. And then we will see afterwards, after the end of the war, we will think what we, would, we, we do with all those decisions. But at this moment, people understand, like most of the people understand that the language is political. And for me, it's still very surprising why people don't understand that. For example, not all of the people, but many in Azerbaijan. In Georgia, they do. If you come to Georgia, for example, as I did in 2008, straight after the Russian invasion, I was surprised why young people, and I was Russian speaking that time, I was surprised why a Georgian young generation wouldn't speak Russian because we all know it. So what is the problem? And they would say because of the invasion, because they tried. They, mm. Like, it's just the same mm. scenario, yeah, because they invaded us also, you know, to free mm -hmm. the population. Mm -hmm. So they uh, switched very quickly. And then when I came to Azerbaijan this spring, I was speaking English. They, some taxi drivers really hated me for that because they asked me if I'm from Ukraine. And I said, yes. And they said, so why wouldn't you speak Russian? And I said, I can't. And they would ask, don't you know it? And I say, I do, but I can't. And then sometimes it would lead to a, a, a more interesting and deep discussion. Sometimes it wouldn't. So it is a decision of an every person. And because we have so many changes and so many things going on here, and so many people die every day, sadly. So people make a decision very quickly about who they are and which language they want to speak and what is their culture, what is their history. We have a renaissance of a Ukrainian culture now and history actually as well. We relearn it, relook at it as never before. I don't think it's like the reason is not great, but it's so important that it's happening. And that includes language, right? Absolutely. Language is the first. Language is an instrument. I mean, if, especially if we talk about literature and repressions mm -hmm. and all of those writers and poets that were killed in, in the 30s. Uh, for language, well, for opposition, but they would talk their position in their language. So, yes, and that is like erased from the USSR history. So, I think uh, many Americans would be surprised to learn that so many Ukrainians speak Russian anyway. I think it's something that's not totally understood that Russian was the language of the Soviet Union. But then once Ukraine got its independence, just like Georgia, just like Azerbaijan, all the when everyone got their independence, I think it would be logical to think that your local language would grow and the language that you were forced to learn in the Soviet Union would sort of fade away. But that didn't happen, did it, right away? It, it took this invasion to really shed Ukraine from its Russian language roots, it seems. Because, yeah, because the language, it was a political strategy of USSR as of any empire. I mean, 
if you look at what we have in India or in Brazil, the colonizers come with their language because they need to teach their culture. Uh, so it's absolutely the same thing. And it's not so easy to just to change it back because for few generations, let's say 70 years, and then we have to remember that Ukraine was also occupied by Russian Empire before for also like almost uh, 200 years. So let's say there are regions, families, generations, they never in their life spoke Ukrainian. And why would they suddenly do that? So before they understood that it's a political instrument, they wouldn't. And then it was a question of principle. But people like this talk today in Azerbaijan, they don't feel it's language is political. This is the first thing. And the other thing is that when your life is hard, let's say all those post-colonial uh, uh, USSR uh, countries, they are poor, people don't have jobs, they don't know where they can get it. And they would sometimes easily find a job like they would if they go to Russia because Russia is so big. Even my father in the 90s, when we had these terrible years, he would go to Siberia to do some hard work for like a couple of months, get some money there and came and would feed us for another few months. So he couldn't do that if he wouldn't know Russian, for example. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the system was organized in a way that people would see more opportunities if they knew the language. Because, I mean, what is happening now in Azerbaijan, for example, they have still Azerbaijani and Russian-speaking sectors within one school, and it's 700 schools like that. And they would call a Russian sector is more elite, and people would still send their kids there. And more like other people who are like, let's say, Azerbaijani-speaking family, they would send their kids, you know, understanding that they want to keep that culture and so on. So it's divided already on the level when you're a child and then you would get more opportunities because then within Azerbaijan you will get better job if you know Russian because you can probably like go and trade with people even if you stay in Azerbaijan. If you want to work in a big company, you cannot know Russian, for example. So that policy influences later on those parents who want to send their kids, you know, to school. And then Russia comes and says, we would free Russian-speaking people. Yeah, so this is how it works. So they would create not only, they would enforce not only to learn Russian, but then they would make an illusion that people can get more opportunities knowing the Russian language. And, uh, and that is a problem because then people just don't feel that they have a choice. That's terrible. That's so sad. And they probably also did that to recruit people into the Soviet army too, I assume. That's why they wanted everyone to speak Russian as well too, to make the army larger and larger. Of course, yeah. After each territory they conquered. I want to ask you now about one of your projects that I found just fascinating. It's called the Victory Train Project. And I know that's a very important project for you. And it's not something that's being shown abroad. That's an internal thing for Ukraine. And it involves your Ukrainian rail network. And I'd really like to hear your inspiration behind that. I took the 17-hour train ride from Warsaw to Kiev uh, and back, and I just never felt more safe or secure than I did on that train. And I was just so grateful to all the people that work for the Ukrainian rail network, because through Western Ukraine. I mean, that is a dangerous thing, a dangerous path. And yet it has become a vital path, a lifeline to the West and to Europe and the rest of the world. And I really want to know what inspired you to create that project. Could you talk about why trains are so important in Ukraine? We, in America, we don't have this kind of extensive train network that you have in Europe. And so the idea of trains being vital for the national economy for many things is kind of foreign to us. Can you explain your inspiration behind this project? 
Uh, yeah. Uh, well, first about the trains. Uh, today is really like the main arteria for um, transportation of anybody. Trains were like usually not for elite. That was just, you know, for anybody because the planes were always very important. But now we can't fly uh, anymore. The sky is closed uh, for anything but the military planes. And... Um, So Ukrainian railways didn't have very good reputation uh, before 2021. And then they invited a new manager, the manager from a private sector, a great guy who never really was working in the governmental structure. And he actually, uh, he was so motivated and he did a lot of reforms inside the system. And uh, Soon the war started. They didn't stop to go to the dangerous spots, the most dangerous. They got a lot of destroyments. There was several uh, missile attacks that really burned the the trains. And they were still going there. They evacuated thousands of people. Uh, some people like who work for uh, Ukrainian railways died. So And they still keep doing that. Every time they go somewhere to Kramatorsk and then Russian would bomb uh, the uh, train station. And there was, I don't know, you probably heard about that. And mm-hmm. yes. there were some also um, people who died there, including the uh, railways um, workers. So it's hard work. Yeah, and then it's a bureaucracy system. It's the biggest governmental company in the country. Is quarter of million people work there, so it's hard to make this system work. And still, it became a love mark because they are so brave, and we call it here iron people, because in Ukrainian the railway would be the iron way. Um, and so they became a love mark and uh, they made some reforms. They also, they did some collaborations and one of them was last year with us. That was an art collaboration. It didn't really make uh, big changes in the system, but it gave some inspiration for people. The train to victory is seven cars. Each of them is painted by a different Ukrainian street artist. And the story of each car is about the great people who are saving Ukraine. Some volunteers or doctors, journalists, agricultural people who still stay on the field under the fire and so on. So we got seven stories and we um, visualized them on, on the train. And the idea that all of those territory we were talking about, they are occupied or they were occupied a year ago. And one of those uh, cars were illustrating uh, heroes of Kherson. And then Kherson was deoccupied in a couple of months after we started Train of Victory. And then it was the first train which came to Kherson. Soon it was deoccupied and people saw it. And it was amazing. So the idea of the uh, Train to Victory was to support and motivate people who stay in the occupied territory to show them that we remember about them, that we remember about their heroes and that we will come soon as we deoccupy the territory. And actually this is exactly what happened to Kherson. And the only thing we can hope that it will happen to other regions that are illustrated there on the train as well. There was a mural of uh, wheat fields And I heard the story that that was in honor of the farmers who had fought the fires in the wheat fields. And I wanted you to maybe talk a little bit about that. I'm just so incredibly amazed at how farmers in Ukraine have to deal with minefields and all kinds of dangers just to grow their crops. And that mural on the train was honoring their effort. Can you can you talk about that? Um, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Um, there are so many heroic things really going on because this is something that gives us hope about Ukrainians that instead of uh, saving their own life, they save the life of others and they are doing some help. So it's like, I don't know, it doesn't seem to be a egoistic nation. <laughs> uh, and you can only learn that in situations like that. 
So I think Whitfields is the Zaporizhia area. And what happened there is Russians would, um, you know, bomb the fields and they would fire because they are dry already. The wheat is dry. So it fires immediately. The idea is that you can run away and save your life. Your field will burn and then you will have nothing. You will have nothing to feed people with and so on. So what they would do, um, they would collect the wheat under the fire. Just, you know, you have the fire just maybe 20, 30 meters from you and they would still collect it to save at least what they could, risking their lives. And nobody told them to do that. So that is amazing. And uh, you can see it all around, not only with fields, but with everything. We were just talking before the podcast about the movie that just came out, which called 20 Days in Mariupol. Yes, yes, that's getting a lot of attention and winning some awards. Yeah, yeah, including Sundance. And uh, there is an amazing documentary made by Mstislav Chernov, who is a great photographer and videographer for Associated Press. And uh, he was there in Mariupol for... 20 days and he arrived there just on the 23rd of February. They didn't know exactly what to expect, of course, but they knew it's going to be something in Mariupol because Mariupol was occupied at the very beginning in 2014 and then they occupied a bit later. And that is a hard movie. I mean, you, you should watch it to understand really what is going on. But that is also a film about a hope because everything you see is how people help each other, how doctors help, how they save their lives. Like you should run when you have a situation like that. You should take your family or maybe just run from that uh, horror that is going on. And people don't do that. They stay and they help to those who really need it more, who cannot help themselves. And so when you see that, then you understand the cultural code of the nation. You can see that in Mariupol and then in Kherson and then in Zabrizia and then in Crimea, everywhere. So it's not an accident. It's something that that is coded in the nation, I guess so. The Russians, do you think, are they trying to commit cultural genocide on Ukraine? For hundreds of years, yes. For hundreds of years. And now it's just the world knows about it. And the world is labeling it a war crime. Yes, and the world has changed because a hundred years ago, nobody cared. Like, I mean, if they would know what is like, if the rest of the world would know what is going on, probably there would be other reactions. But still, in terms of uh, social norms, everything changed very much, yeah. So all these, I think, humanistic ideas and um, the ideas that you cannot just kill other people and nothing will happen, that doesn't work anymore, even if you're in the fire. Has the Ukrainian art community in general become stronger or has this hurt the community? How are artists coping with the war? I think hard. <laughs> I think it's hard because mm -hmm. all kind of artists, they are usually very sensitive, yeah, sensitive to all the changes. So personally, I think it's hard to those people. It's hard for me, like being emotionally sensitive. I understand that sometimes I just can't handle it. But we also need to see that the art community is not one thing because there are people who stayed in Ukraine. There are people who left. There are people who became more active and there are people who became more quiet because they don't have that emotional resource. So I believe there are um, different answers to this question. And one of them is that there is no more art that is not connected to the war or let's call it to Ukrainian question in general. So somebody would work with Ukrainian history. Somebody would reflect to directly to some war crimes. Somebody would, you know, write an experimental emotional music, which is written in the basement as a reflection to a certain events. So I would say that everybody has this lens, you know, and it will probably stay with us for a very long time, even if the war will like end today. That is a perspective that we cannot avoid for a pretty long time. In that sense, it's interesting to look at how 
people are grown up in terms of their artistic practices as well. So before you could do anything on any subject and experiment, which is great, I believe. I just don't think we have a choice now. Can you really do something else and just ignore the war? You cannot. So it's like really interesting how to say a new word on that subject, you know, how not to be really trivial of of what you do, how to see bigger perspective on that. Should we talk not just about the current events, but really about the history, about our colonial past, our repressions, about our destroyed intellectual base, yeah, and all that. So I'm personally very interested now in that part, in decolonial practices and in relearning, rethinking our history. I saw recently that the motherland statue, the Soviet symbols have been replaced with the Ukrainian trident. And I know that's been a big deal in society in in Ukraine. Everyone's talking about that. Why was that so important? What is the trident? Can you explain what that symbolizes? Uh, well, first of all, I will tell a bit about the sculpture itself because it's been it's like a Soviet sculpture. It's been there for the, maybe 50 years or so. So it was there for quite a long time. So people would um, look at it as a Soviet monument. But then for me, it's also an artistic sculpture. It's a great piece. It's really made in a style of uh, social realism, but it's a great sculpture. And uh, there was some discussion several years ago when we had this dehumanization movement. So we need to destroy it. But then people decided that it needed to stay as, you know, as a monument of the past. But then, of course, we had some USSR symbols on it. And it was very weird to have it while we already have a war, you know, because then in the center of Kiev, we have a monument with uh, Soviet symbols yeah and and we try you know to fight against it so but then the question is do we really need to take it off now because it's um we have so many things to do and it's so expensive to do it so the society didn't really like and then then there was a lot of fights uh, in the social media about it what should we do with it and then finally they decided that they not just take off the symbols but they would put trident and then it would make it even more expensive because you know it's it's a huge thing like 50 meter sculpture uh but then of course it was not governmental money it was a private money but of businesses and they wanted to do it and they have the total right to do it so why not so people didn't really like it and then they didn't like the trident and then they didn't uh, like how it looked and then they hated it for how it looked but i think It is important that it's not there anymore. And I really believe that people can spend their own money on the way they want it. Uh, And especially if they make some good things and they still help the army. And then they, you know, there were a few businesses who came together and said, okay, we are ready to invest in that as well as we help to the army, as the volunteers, we do a lot of other things. So that was not noticed by the society. I like the idea that it's changed now. Um, Is it the right time to do it? I don't know. There is no right time other than now for any other things. The symbol itself is an old symbol from Kievan Rus. It's called now a symbol of independent Ukraine, but it was not invented now. It was not invented 100 years ago. It was adopted 100 years ago by a great uh, Ukrainian graphic, Narbut. You can find this symbol in many, many, many books and graphical images of the past. So for the last thousand years, that's why it means so much. Because Ukraine is a country, it existed then it didn't for many years, then it was divided by parts, then it was under control of Russian, of the Mongols, of the Rich Pospolita, of Austro-Hungarian Empire. And like, it was so many people here. So in Ukraine, as a country, was not there for a very long time. Um, but the symbols and the Kievan Rus and its symbols were there like forever. 
so it gave an idea of an identity and what do we belong and kept people together and maybe it helped to you know to stay together for such a long time and to bring that culture and identity through all these thousand years until now wow wow I'd like to talk to you about the reaction to the war here in the West and, and in the art world in particular. I, I'm sure you know the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York mm -hmm. changed the name of, of its Edgar Degas pastels from Russian dancers to dancers in Ukrainian dress. And should more museums around the world be doing this. Is there other Ukrainian art that has been culturally appropriated by Russia historically that the West needs to pay attention to now in a, in a different perspective? Yes, absolutely. That is a great example. And I think what Metropolitan did was a really great gesture because it's just one artwork, but that the museum itself, it's so important that other museums would look at it and then probably ask why would they do that? And should we do the same? And then would see their catalogs and, you know, learn more about that. And actually it's created a cascade of changes. So that is very important. And yes, it is the case of appropriation is a huge problem because the idea was to blur the identity, but then of course, to use the best brains and the best talents for glory of empire. So what happened uh, at the beginning of, again, of the beginning of the 20th century, the artists like Malevich, for example, or Alexandra Arhipenko, who lives not far from you, somewhere in New York, uh, like David Burluk, who is a great uh, also Ukrainian avant-gardist who then also lived in New York for many years, and some others. So Russians would call those artists Russian artists. And they would not write it like born in Ukraine, for example, or Ukrainian by origin. They would destroy that and would leave just the Russian. Sometimes it's really the case because, for example, Malevich is Polish by origin and Russian would destroy oh. that as well. So he's Polish, born in Kiev and worked in Kiev and also lived and worked in Moscow for some time, which doesn't make him a Russian artist. But soon as somebody step a foot on the Russian land, they would call him a Russian artist. And the same with the musicians and writers and so on. Of course, when we talk about the literature, it's much harder because Ukrainian artists would write in Ukrainian. But then they still managed to call some of them Russian writers, a lot of examples like that. But then some other artists, which like not clear, like Repin. And Repin is a Ukrainian artist by origin. They did a lot for Ukraine, but then he also was a part of Russian artistic scene. So what they would do, they would appropriate all of those names without really explaining if there was a Russian origin or how many years the artist would spend there. And then, of course, when we talk about museums, then and if those museums got those pieces, well, probably which which is the case during the 20th century, and then they should sign it somehow. And then, of course, uh, there is no Ukrainian embassy they can talk to about it, nothing like that. So even if they would ask someone how to write it, the only answer they would get is that is like a USSR or a Russian artist or artists born in the Russian empire. So blurring that identity actually was very dangerous for us. And that's why the world doesn't know much about what is going on here. Because when you ask people, do they know any Ukrainian artists? They would say no, but actually they do. They do. They just yeah. don't know that they are Ukrainian. Mm. So it is very important to look at that again with all that, you know, decolonial perspective and see... What is the origin of those people? Where these talents came from? Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's not only for Ukrainian. I mean, it's for all ex-colonial states because the same problem is in Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan and in Georgia. The situation is pretty similar because the, the strategy was the same. But the world is 
talking about Ukraine now and probably later we'll be talking about those countries too and how the same thing that happened to Ukraine actually happened to them. It's just something uh, many, many Americans just aren't aware of from history. I want to talk to you about uh, America a little bit. What do you like about American culture? Where have you visited in America and what American artists do you like? Uh, I visited several places. Uh, I, uh, of course, went to New York and I love it. I went to Hawaii. <laughs> that was amazing. I went to Denver and then uh, to some ski resorts. That was also very beautiful. Uh, I went to San Francisco for a couple of days. Uh, yeah, but probably most of my time, uh, I came to New York two or three times. And that was that was quite, quite an experience, especially the last time. It was in 2016. We had a documentary exhibition about how Ukraine became a part of UN and how it helped to create the main statute because we actually was very active on that and also nobody remember that. But we had the copies and originals of the documents provided by the Minister of the Foreign Affairs and at that time we hosted the exhibition at UN. So um, that was a pretty uh, interesting experience. But also um, just talking about the American culture, American art, I'm a, a huge fan of <laughs> all uh, second part of um, the 20th century when uh, actually American, mainly New York, became the center of art scene, of the world art scene, because there was Paris, uh, if we if we look at the art history, the center of art, the concentration, uh, there was a Paris and of course you, there was a big migration during the First World War. And then of course, after the second, but then, so I think starting from, from, the, from the 50s, but sometimes earlier, like 40s, late 40s, uh, and then uh, with abstractionist and then pop art. Um, and then, of course, a huge wave of the feminist art with Judy Chicago. The feminist movement is uh, great. I love Guerrilla Girls, uh, just uh, a fan of them. And um, yeah, but I really like um, uh, more classical things like uh, Jasper Jones, for example, uh, and... Uh, um, Barnett Newman and, you know. Well, I just have one last question, Katya, and again, thank you so much for your time. And it, it's really been fascinating talking to you. And like I mentioned to you earlier, the purpose of this podcast is to celebrate Ukrainian culture and highlight some of the positive things going on in Ukraine and some of the, the great things that we in the West need to know about Ukraine and why we should, in particular, why America should continue supporting Ukraine. What I wanted to ask you is um, if there was one thing you would want Americans to know about Ukraine that they probably don't already know, what would that be? <laughs> it's a very big responsibility <laughs> <laughs> to answer that question. Well, we talk about culture today, so I think the most important is to know that we have our authentic culture and history and we are not part of something else. We have the past and the history and great people who will keep that together. And thank you very much for your support as well, because we would not be able to continue this fight without you guys. <laughs>